Hi everyone, this is Amber Shaw, founder and CEO of Adorsis, a laboratory data management software company. Welcome to Adorsis Lab Software Podcast. Joining me today is a very special guest, Darren Platt. Darren is Chief Information Officer and President at Dimitrix. One of his roles is to oversee the team that handle data management and analysis for Dimitrix cell engineering platform. Prior to Dimitrix, Darren was VP of Data Science at Amherst, head of research at 23andMe, and led the computing effort at the Joint Genome Institute from DOE and XLexis, overseeing several multi-million dollar software projects and large teams of software developers in biotech settings, covering DNA sequencing, consumer genomes, and synthetic biology. Absolute pleasure to be here. In the last episode, we talked about some general questions around buying a commercial software or build in-house for labs. Um, so usually people think buy versus build is a hard question. But once it's decided, let's say if you decide to build it in-house, actually the hard part just starts, right? Because then mm -hmm. you have to yep. find the, uh, the right resources, you have to gather the requirement, do analysis and design it and develop and test, etc. But those are all like pretty much standard procedure. It doesn't matter if you're building a software for lab or for a consumer app mm -hmm. uh, but i think what's unique for us like the lab type of software is the environment the environment that the software we release to it's a lab environment lab user it's not an environment that most people interact with on a daily basis right so mm -hmm. the, and also the type of software that we are developing it's not um something that's really has like simple functions where you can just give it to the user and they play around with it, they figure out. A lot of time it mm -hmm. involves uh, calculations and very sophisticated features, so it's hard to figure out. At the same time, there's no like millions of users in the lab. Uh, typically, there are just like groups of users with dedicated functions and roles, and then they some do wet lab and some do dry labs, and sometimes they do both. And also we have users who don't like to use softwares, but they were told that they have to use softwares, right? So uh -huh. so there's like this mix of different type of users where you have to make sure they're all happy with your software. So this is why I think it's really important to, before you design, uh, before you develop a so lab software, you have to really think carefully about your design, making sure the design is suitable for the lab environment. So today, yep. I think we're gonna talk about, um, so basically, how to design the software correctly so it's suited for the lab environment. Uh -huh. um, yep. once, Sounds like a plan. Once you know the requirements, so how do you come up with the right design? What are different factors that we should consider during the designing for a lab software? I think that is a wonderful question and I've built so many of these things and I would say I've seen things go really well and I've seen things go really badly and you always sort of afterwards try to work out like you know basically where did I go right or wrong on that project. I think the good news is um, most people implementing these systems have captive audience of you know maybe a few dozen to maybe a few hundred um, users and they can go and talk to them your, your audience is right there it's not like selling software anonymously over the internet so you get to know mm -hmm. them really well you can watch them you can learn uh, if you make a mistake you can fix it really quickly um, there's an enormous amount of flexibility i think the bad news is there's also an enormous amount of flexibility um, most bio labs are fast moving 
target where the requirements are constantly changing and people are expecting the software to sort of follow them around. And when you roll out software, you're actually dictating basically a whole lot of people's lives. You're, you're controlling how that lab's going to run. I'm a big fan of building software after there's been a little bit of process for a while, maybe with Excel spreadsheets. Um, people actually know what they're doing. You really want to make sure that they've standardized their process. You're not trying to build four different workflows. You're building the one that they've decided on. And then you really want to build a minimum viable product, get it in their hands and see if they like it and then sort of iterate on the design. Um, if you can take mm -hmm. some shortcuts, if you can have things that are done on the command line for a while or uploading spreadsheets or maybe even with SQL, that's fine if you get it, something to them a little bit more quickly. Um, the right. area I never like to compromise on is the data structure piece. So if you're going to spend time sort of working one piece out, how you represent the data in the database will have a really long-term consequences um, for all sorts of things. It's very, very hard to change. The actual user interfaces, how you collect things, you can kind of constantly tweak and improve, um, but definitely understand what they're trying to represent and make sure you get a really solid, you know, if you're dealing with strains, make sure you have a really good data model for representing that. Um, the other thing when you're designing it is you should challenge every single assumption when they tell you they always do this. Um, you want to ask them about the unhappy paths, about when things go wrong in the lab, do they ever vary things? Um, to, when they say that it will always have a name, make sure that that is really true. Um, so that's basically sort of the core of the design. Challenge the assumptions. It's good if you can actually watch a working process um, and then build the smallest thing possible, get it in their hands, and then, um, then constantly add features to it. A lot of people just back into this sort of accidentally. They just sort of start with a spreadsheet and it just some monster gets built on top of it without a lot of thought. Right, I couldn't agree more. So basically, it's better for the lab to kind of decide on their process first, right? So once they understand yep. the process, then you can build something that's really tangible uh, rather yep. than just kind of trying to tackle everything, right? I'd almost go as far as saying is if, if the process of rolling out a limb system doesn't actually force them to standardize a little bit and really become a little bit more formal with their process, you're probably not doing it the right way. If the contract is they can continue doing whatever they like and you'll try to track it, um, then that's going to end badly for them and you probably. Right. So what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen people made? Yeah, I think I mean sort of related to my last point. Um, sometimes the worst thing you can do is actually build exactly what they ask for. If you just sort of blindly go down and write and say it must do this, it must do that, and right. you just implement it without challenging the assumptions, um, you build something they don't like. I still remember building a process for freezer check-ins where they wanted to say which freezer, rack, row, position, every single thing went in. We built the system, we rolled it out, and then they complained that they had to click too much. We said, well, you have to click too much because you have to write all of that down. And then they said, well, it turns out we don't really want to write all of that down. Um, so, again, you're probably going to change the lab a little bit as you do this and so make sure they're up for it. Um, codifying an unscalable process or a process that's non-standard is a, always a mistake. Um, push them on primary keys for things. If the primary key is just a free text field to describe the thing, and they're not prepared to do things like roll out numbers and stuff like that, unique numbers, um, then it's pretty dangerous to build a sort of a database on top of that. Um, challenge them on scale. They, you might be able to build a beautiful interface that enables them to check in one plate at a time. 
um, when they're hoping that the limbs will enable them to go really fast. So they're suddenly doing 100 of these a day and the thing you designed around is now sort of hopeless for sort of the scale they're operating at. So sort of anticipate sort of success and um, getting to larger scales and then really help them understand this is a contract. Once that software is there, um, even though we say software, you know, the word soft implies that it's sort of flexible, often the software piece is one of the least flexible elements of running a lab. They can go in and do a different experiment every day, but can the database actually capture it and record it? Um, so there's usually some implicit contract there that you're actually building a pipeline that is meant for sort of high throughput operations. Um, and that doesn't mean you can do anything you like sort of, and the software will be infinitely flexible. Yeah, it's really interesting that you brought up the point about scaling, because um, that's, uh, in my experience, a lot of people don't think about scale uh, either at the very beginning. So they always think, yeah. oh, you know, once you able to process five plates and that's the throughput that we need and that's that's all we need right now but a lot yeah. of time you know uh, like a few months later or even just you realize i need to process uh 10 plates or 100 plates so that's yeah. where it fits and this kind of goes back to the um the point that you made about the right design about the data structure you know often yeah. enough um, when you couldn't scale from 10 plate to 100 plate it has something to do with your database design, your, uh, you know, the structures. And so there's some fun fundamental issues behind yep. there. That's why it's better to get that right in the first place and think about yep. the scaling right from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So, the other, I got a good quote actually this week from somebody who just said, I'm never going to um, quote a timeline for a piece of software without looking at the customer's data again. Because um, we build something, you think the data's in great shape. And then when you try to actually load the data into the data system, you realize that you've got three months of pretty aggressive curation just to put existing information to the database because it's not consistent with the new data model everybody agreed on. There's missing information and wrong information, things like that. Um, so I also like to share, uh, while we're talking about design, so um, I like to share a secret sauce that I don't even huh? know if you remember, but I learned from you in the early days. Huh. So uh, that is the best software doesn't have to be complicated. Sometimes yeah. like, the most elegant solution is the, really the simplest solution, right? So yeah. um, believe it or not, that's the, actually a model I lived by uh, in my everyday work. Um, uh -huh. I, I think as like part of human nature, I do find most of us tend to make things very, very complicated, overly complicated. So yep. how do we yep. simplify things when it comes to designing software? Because I find you have that, you, you really have the, uh, the eyes and the mind to really simplify things and finding the most essential element. So how do you do that? I think the first thing you've got to do is really be quite, um, you got to be pushy with the users. And this is probably the hardest bit about being a good limbs architect is basically you're serving somebody, but at the same time, you really sometimes have to argue with them and you've got to tell them, no, I'm not going to do that. This is just too complicated. Um, and I'll give you, you know, one example, which is that I found actually biologists often make artificial distinctions between things. So, for example, my line of work, they have bacteria and they have yeast, and they like to number them differently. So there's a number for the bacteria and a number for the yeast. Um, a computer scientist will walk up to that and just say, look, they're all cells. Why don't we just call them cells? And we could just number them the same way. So, you know, if I have my way, everything will have just one numbering scheme, you know, one to N and the bacteria and the yeast mixed together. But sometimes you'll have an argument. Um, the users will say, no, 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 there has to be two tables, one for that, one for that, because they're a little bit different. Um, the second one is always push for numeric IDs for things. Um, 
people love <laughs> right. writing what I call a novel yeah. in the in the label for something. This is the thing that came from the thing that begat the thing that was the third version of the second. It was like, no, it's 22117. We can put some human text next to it. Um, so you'll fight over primary keys. I think sometimes also if you're building a small-scale process and it's going to be a, a, um, a high-throughput process at some point, it's almost worth skipping straight to the automation. Sometimes it's cheaper to actually build the system, talk to the robot. Robot data collection is usually the cheapest way to get data into a system, whereas if you allow humans to enter things, you know, um, you have to build very complex user interfaces. Um, there's a couple of other examples of simplification in the DNA world. You can treat every piece of DNA as a part, everything from a linker to a plasma to a chromosome. You can come up with very, very simple representations. Same thing for vessels. You can just have a vessel. That can be everything from a fermentation tank to an oligotube. And a computer scientist will say that's, you know, it's a nice uniform representation. Um, I love ontologies, like one standard ontology, which is it's been widely used in biology as a sort of a hierarchical system for labeling things. If you have one of those, you'll find you can just use it over and over and over again for the descriptive part. Um, and the final bit of advice is convince the customer to live with the minimum viable product for a while. Mm -hmm. They will want a million features, but sometimes living with that MVP, they realize actually that's most of what they needed. And, and it's actually more important to build something else and to add all the bells and whistles that are in the original set of requirements. Okay, once you have the design, then yep. what do you do next? Do you uh, actually spend the time to try to figure out if your design is correct or not? Uh, do you write prototype or mock-up? Do you get user to yep. uh, involved uh, doing some testing on your design, or do you yep. go straight to development? Like, what do you do with that? I, you know, I think um, once I understand the requirements, I'm pretty comfortable going to, to actual writing the software and building it, um, but. I'm usually, it takes me a long time before I'm convinced I understand the requirements. And I always tell my software engineers, I would rather you spend, you know, an extra week or two just really nailing down what the customer wants. And that can be showing them balsamic mock-ups of a user interface. Sometimes it's just brutal two or three hour meetings with them where they go over how they label their test tubes on Mondays versus Fridays and stuff like that. And we write it all down. Um, used a lot of um, concept boards, things like this, sketching photographs of whiteboards, um, really making sure everybody understands it, particularly the data structure. That's like, again, thing I wouldn't sort of compromise around because you can fix a user interface. Very, very hard to fix a schema once you've sort of built everything on top of it. Um, once we have that, and we've actually even trained some of our customers to use Balsamic, so they're comfortable actually mocking up a user interface and saying, this is how I want it to look. So once that conversation's really good, uh, then we basically race to build the minimum viable product. Um, we have our customers are actually able to pull the code and build it, run it locally, so they can actually look at the software as it comes together. Um, we can push it out to a staging environment. So we try to show it to them really early and often so we don't catch anything as we've missed. Um, and then once it goes live, you just race to fill in all the things that you forgot, forgot about. So the race doesn't stop once the software arrives. It's usually a... Okay, now I tell my software engineers, now you've caught the bus and you've attached yourself to the side of it and that bus is just going to continue to tear down the road and you just need to keep up with it once somebody's <laughs> depend dependent on the software operating yeah. all the time. So those are excellent points uh, in designing. Thank you so much for sharing with uh, with our listeners. Yep, my pleasure. Um, 
Yeah, so we have another episode coming up uh, and we'll be talking about questions around uh, development resources, for example, like how to find the right people to develop your software or what are the challenges that facing in finding the right people. So for cool. listeners who, who like the episode, do check back with us uh, in two weeks. So I look forward to talking to you again, Darren. Absolute pleasure, Amber. Thanks. Mm-hmm.